All right. Well, it is very good to be with you tonight. We know people will file in on Baptist time, and that's fine. We'll, uh, we'll just pray and we'll get started, shall we? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful for your word and for the way that you have so amazingly preserved it for us, even now who are thousands of years after the events that we see in the scriptures. You are almighty over all, and so we have confidence that we have your very word. And I pray that as we study this subject tonight, that you would uh, bless us and that you would help us to rightly understand things and to glory in you and the amazing work that you have accomplished in the preserving of your texts. We pray that in all of this you'd be glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, how do you know, how do you know that the Bible that you have with you tonight is truly the Word of God. After all, the book of Revelation was written 1,900 years ago, and Job, which is understood to be the first book that was written, was written 3,400 years ago. How can you know that thousands of years later that the books that you're reading in your Bible are the same books that were written down all that time ago? And then furthermore, you're using a translation, right? Unless, unless you have brought the Hebrew and the Greek with you tonight, you're using a translation instead of the manuscripts. So how do you know for certain that your translation is saying what the originals said? These are the subjects that we're going to tackle tonight. We're going to be discussing two things. We're going to discuss the preservation of Scripture, and we're going to study the translation of Scripture. Preservation, translation. And you'll notice that as we're going through this tonight that uh, it's going to be less of a Bible study than we're used to. And rather than it being a Bible study, it's more of a study of the Bible, if you will, a study of the Bible. And part of the reason for this is that I could quote you a passage, and I will, but then how would you know? It's like a circular argument. How would you know that the passage that I quoted actually belongs in the Bible and has been translated correctly for you? So instead... We're mainly going to be making an argument for why the Bibles that we have today are the very word of God. Trustworthy, authoritative, infallible, inerrant. Tonight's study is also going to be a bit more scholarly, you'll notice, and a little less devotional than we're used to. Uh, but, but we need to realize that, that these doctrines that we're covering of the preservation of God's word and the translation of God's word are foundational for why we believe the Bibles that we have today. So parts of it may feel bland, but it's critical, like vegetables, right? Hang in there. And as, if things get confusing as we go along, just raise your hand and, and we'll answer any clarifying questions that you might have. I also want to give a full and a clear disclaimer that the content that we're about to cover belongs completely to Dr. Bob Gonzalez from Reformed Baptist Seminary. Uh, he was very kind to give me his extensive notes from when he taught on this subject and they were so good that I just decided to use the whole thing. Uh, I'm going to be paraphrasing it in my own words but all the credit goes to that good brother Bob Gonzalez who I'm sure would give glory to God anyway. All right so let's take a look at the top of your handout chapter 1 paragraph 8 of the second London Baptist Confession says this the Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God and by his singular care and providence kept pure in all ages, are therefore authentic. So as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal to them. But because these original tongues are not known to all the people of God, who have a right unto an interest in the scriptures and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them. Therefore, they are to be translated into the vulgar language of every nation unto which they come, that the word of God, dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship him in an acceptable manner and through patience and comfort of the scriptures may have hope. So in this section of the, of the confession, the, parag the paragraph of the confession, 
It addresses three subjects that we're going to cover. The inspiration, the preservation, and the translation of the Holy Scriptures. We can, we can think of it as three stages in the process by which God makes his word available to his people from one generation to the next. He inspires, he preserves, and he allows for translation. First, the, the Puritans affirm in this section that the Bible was originally written in Hebrew and Greek. And that those writings, the original writings in Hebrew and Greek, were immediately inspired by God. That word immediately is not talking about how quick God did it. It's talking about how he, it's talking about the miraculous nature of divine inspiration of the scriptures. The miraculous nature of this divine inspiration. Again, we talked about this in previous sessions. The, the God used human writers to write down the word. And you see in them their different personalities. You see in them their different quirks. But the Holy Spirit directly superintended the process to make sure that every word that those human beings wrote down was God's very word. That's inspiration. Second, they state that these scriptures have been, quote, kept pure by God's singular care and providence. This is talking about the many centuries in which those original manuscripts that we don't have anymore have been copied for the next generations. And that's sometimes called the transmission of Scripture. The transmission of Scripture. And third, because the gospel has gone out to the nations, and because not all the nations know Hebrew and Greek, it has been necessary to translate the Scriptures into what the authors call, quote, the vulgar language of every nation. And vulgar doesn't mean crass here, right? It's not saying, like, don't be vulgar. It's talking about common. It's like, it's how common people speak. Our Puritan forefathers believed that the Bible should be translated into the common tongue of every nation, including English. So to help us understand this section better, let's take a look first at the context, the context of the Confession's teaching. This paragraph, you can see, came about because of at least three things that were going on in history at the time. You'll notice some of the things in the, in the, uh, the confession are just, they're just true for all time. They deserve to be written down. And there's other things that they're writing that are directly in response to things that are going on in the world, like things that the Roman Catholic Church was doing. So there are three historical factors that impact the writing of this paragraph in the confession. First, the emphasis of the Renaissance on original sources. One of the slogans of the European Renaissance was ad fontes, which means to the sources. And that's not just talking about the Bible. Everyone was wanting to go back to original sources on things. But that desire, this widespread desire in the Renaissance to go back to the originals helped to motivate the Protestant Reformation's call to go back to the scriptures in their original languages. The Renaissance also gave rise to uh, the science of what we call textual criticism. And the rise of textual criticism sparked debates in the 15th and 16th centuries about textual variance. Well, what are we talking about? Textual criticism, textual variance. What we're talking about is that we no longer actually have the original manuscripts penned by Moses or Paul, etc. Okay? We don't have the original manuscripts, but we have plenty of copies. And so by comparing the copies and seeing where they agree, seeing where they don't agree, and where there may have been scribal errors and the like, we can then recreate with a high level of certainty the originals. So I'll give you an example of what that might look like. Let's say that I handed you all a piece of paper and I gave you all pencils and pens or whatever, and I started to read to you my wedding vows. I don't know. I started to read to you my wedding vows, which happened to be the Williams' wedding vows as well. Copy them for them. Anyway, uh, I read them to you and I asked you to write them down as I went along. You're going to make, some of you will make mistakes because you don't write very fast or because you heard me wrong or because you're not a very good speller. Some of you are going to make mistakes. Some of you may try to make fun of the whole thing and add a whole different section uh, just because you wanted to. But if we collected all of your copies of my wedding vows, we could recreate 
the original. I could rip up my wedding vows and throw them away, but from all of your copies, we could reasonably recreate the original. Does that make sense? That's the science of textual criticism. Um, by comparing the copies, we can have a high level of certainty that we actually have what the original said. So we, again, we have the emphasis of the Renaissance on original sources. Two, the Church of Rome's elevation of the Latin Vulgate. So the Church of Rome, they thought that God preserved the word in the Latin Vulgate, which was the fourth century, fifth, fourth or fifth century, I can't remember off the top of my head, official translation of the, of the tr Greek and Hebrew manuscripts into Latin. Latin Vulgate. Latin Vulgate, yeah. So that was translated into Latin in the, in the fourth or fifth century. Again, ex it exactly escapes my head right now. But that was used as the church as basically the scriptures. Um, and because of that, Rome tended to elevate the Latin Vulgate, the Latin translation, above the original Greek and Hebrew manuscripts. And if there was any kind of controversy when it comes to doctrine or practice, they wouldn't go back to the original manuscripts that they had, or the oldest manuscripts. They would go to the Latin Vulgate to settle those controversies. Here are some words from the Council of Trent, which was the Roman Catholic's response to the Reformation. They write this. Moreover, the same Holy Synod ordains and declares that the said old and Vulgate edition, which by the lengthened usage of so many ages has been approved of in the church, be in public lectures, disputations, sermons, and expositions held as authentic, and that no one is to dare or presume to reject it under any pretext whatsoever. Basically, the argument is, we've had the Latin Vulgate for 1,100 years. It's been good for this whole time, so no one should question it, that this is their answer to everything. Some who hold, and not all people who hold to King James only positions, that would have the similar argument about the King James Bible. This is God's inspired word in the English, they would say, and so don't ever use anything else because God inspired the translation of the King James Bible. Not, again, not everyone who holds to King James onlyism believes that. That's kind of a more extreme position. The third historical factor is the Church of Rome's opposition to unauthorized vernacular translations. Rome didn't deny translating the Bible per se. They were okay with some translations. Like, for example, they did authorize the uh, Rui Rames English Bible in the late 16th and early 17th centuries. However, Rome did forbid unauthorized translations, translations that the church did not sign off on, like the translations of John Wycliffe and William Tyndale. Those translations were deemed by the church at Rome to have errors and heretical teachings, and they also believed that putting the Bible in the common tongue would encourage lay people to read their Bibles and to interpret the Bibles independently of the church's teaching. So Rome did not encourage lay people to read their Bibles. We're always saying, you guys need to read your Bible, read your Bible every day. The Roman Catholic Church did not encourage that for fear that some people would run wild with the scriptures. So these three are some of the factors that led to the writing of this paragraph in the Confession. But more importantly, the Puritans saw the transmission and the translation of the Bible not just as freedoms, but as responsibilities of the church. So that's the context. And having looked at the historical context, let's look next at an exposition an exposition of the Confession's teaching. <clears throat> first, we're going to take a look at the first half of the paragraph, and that's really going to take the majority of our time tonight. So when we're done with this section, you're going to be like, we only have 10 minutes left, don't worry. We're going to take the bulk of our time in this section, and then we'll look at the second half of the paragraph. The first half of the paragraph deals with, number one, the preservation of Scripture. The preservation of Scripture or the transmission of scripture. We're going to look at this concept. So we read in paragraph or chapter 1, paragraph 8, again. The Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God and by his singular care and providence, 
kept pure in all ages and therefore authentic, so as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal to them. Let's make a couple of observations here. A, the confession assumes a distinction between the original writings of the Old and New Testaments and the copies of those writings. They do make a distinction between the originals and the copies. The technical terms on this subject are uh, the autographa, which is the writings themselves, and the apographa, the copies of the writings. Autographa, like auto, like self, and then apo, from the copies of those writings, okay? So when the authors of the confession speak of God's preserving his word, they're not talking about the very tablets of stone that God wrote the Ten Commandments on. They're not talking about uh, the scrolls of the Pentateuch that Moses wrote on and placed next to the ark. They're not claiming that God has preserved those and they're just sitting somewhere. They're not saying that we have access to the, the very parchment on which Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians. So what God has preserved is not the autographa, not the originals, but the apographa, the copies of the originals. And it's the apographa, the copies, that the confession has in view when it's talking about the preservation of the Hebrew and Greek testaments. B, second observation, B. The confession asserts a continuity between the original writings of the Old and New Testament and the copies of those writings. So yeah, they, they make a distinction. These were written originally, these are copies, but they don't pit the originals against the copies. They don't say that the originals are inspired, but the copies are not. They don't say that. What they actually say is that God preserved the writings of Moses and Isaiah and Paul, etc., so that the texts that they call authentic are actually the copies. They're calling the copies authentic. Well, that raises a question. Are, are they saying that the copies of Scripture are just as inspired as the originals? And the answer to that question is not a simple yes or no. It's not a simple yes or no. It depends on um, whether we're talking about the process or the product. Are, are we talking about how God made the writings come into being? Or are we talking about the quality of the writings themselves? We'll put it like this. It's in your outline. Number one, God only inspired the original writings. God only inspired the original writings. So if the focus is on what God did with the apostles and the prophets, as opposed to what God did for the scribes who copied their writings, then yeah, we're going to make a distinction there. What God did for the people who wrote the originals is what we call divine, divine inspiration. Sorry, these coughs are creating like tension for what's coming next. They're called divine inspiration. What God did for the people who were making copies of the originals is not inspiration. We call that divine preservation, all right? So he inspired the people who were writing it originally, and then through the people who were copying it, he preserved it. You see the difference there? Yet, number two, yet the copies possess the quality of inspiration. They possess the quality of inspiration. So if we're talking about the quality of the copies versus the qualities of the originals, then the Puritans and we would affirm that there has been continuity. God has, quote, kept pure the original writings by his singular care and providence. Um, if the very words have been preserved in the copies, then the copies have the quality of inspiration. So when the confession describes the scriptures as the only inspired, authoritative, and infallible rule for faith and life, it's applying not only to the originals, which we don't have, but also to the copies, which we do have. And that naturally leads to our third observation. But before we get there, yeah, Cedric. Right. Because 
Right. Absolutely. Well put. Well put. Hannah, would you mind breaking into my office, which should be unlocked, and getting my big water jug? You won't miss it. Bigger than your head. <clears throat> All right. Great point there. So, yeah, if it were just one document and it was just sealed in some box in the Middle East, how would we get it over here? But the fact that there are all these copies being spread and disseminated, that's part of the way that God used to spread the gospel rapidly in that, in that area and then all over the world. All right. So number three, the confession affirms that God has taken special care to preserve the integrity of the autographa in the apographa, to preserve the integrity of the originals in the copies. When the confession talks about God's, quote, singular care and providence, it's probably not talking about two different things, care and providence. It's the, the Puritans were probably employing a literal, literary device that's called a hendiadis, which is where you use two words or phrases to really just be talking about the same thing. So thank you very much. So God's singular care and providence is talking about his special and loving providence. It's the providence that he exercises specifically and especially for his people, where he, he exercises a general providence for the whole world, but for his, his people in particular, he exercises a special providence. Later, when we get to the chapter on providence, we're going to learn, quote, As the providence of God does in general reach to all cultures, so after a more special manner, it takes care of his church and disposes of all things to the good thereof, end quote. And while God's acts of inspiration and, and preservation are both acts of special providence, inspiration takes an extraordinary work, whereas preservation takes ordinary work. Let me explain that a little bit. In other words, in order for God to inspire the writers of the scriptures to, to write down every single word that he would, that would be his, his word, that's a supernatural, that's a miraculous work, okay? On the other hand, God can and God does use ordinary means to preserve his word, like faithful scribes trying to keep the scriptures as, as accurate as possible, and tons and tons of manuscripts, that kind of thing. Now, what is the aim or the goal of divine preservation? The aim of preservation is, is to make the scriptures, which are the rule and faith, uh, rule of faith and life for the church, quote, kept pure in all ages and authentic, so as in all the controversies of religion, the church is to finally appeal to them. So the goal is to have a Bible that is pure, it's uncontaminated, it's authentic, it's true, and it's conforming to the original. And if the Bible is the only authoritative and infallible standard for faith and life, then God must ensure that the Bible remains available to his people at all times and all places. Now, that opens up a can of worms. We need to consider the question, and we will consider the question, does the purity and the authenticity of the Bible refer to the message that the Bible conveys, which is also known as substantial preservation, or does it refer to all the letters and all the words that make up the text, which is called absolute preservation? If it's that second one, absolute preservation, that God has preserved not just the message, but every single letter and every single word, then where is this perfect text, this, this authoritative, this authentic and pure text? Because we have so many variants in the copies. We have some variants among the copies. We'll get to that can of worms in a second. But for now, let's consider the biblical support for divine preservation. Um, how do we know that God preserves his word for all ages? And first, let's look at number one in your outline. There's like 10 number ones on there. Number one, the next number one, a logical argument for divine preservation. A logical argument for divine preservation. <clears throat> the Puritans believe that 
the very nature and the very purpose of the scripture make it so that divine preservation is logically necessary. If we simplified their argument, it would go something like this. The major premise, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable spiritually for his people. Amen? That's from 2 Timothy 3.16. Minor premise, God wants his people of all ages to profit spiritually from the scriptures. That's right. The conclusion would be then that God must preserve all scripture throughout the ages so that all of his people might benefit and profit spiritually. They probably put it way more eloquent than I just did, but they certainly believed that the doctrine of divine preservation was a good and necessary inference from what the scriptures teach. Number two, the key scripture texts that support divine preservation. There have been various passages that, uh, that have been used to support divine preservation, but the one that the Puritans leaned on the most, and they even cited it as a proof text in the confession, was Matthew 5.18. Matthew 5.18. And in that text, Jesus says, and I'm reading from the King James on this one, <clears throat> For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. A jot, it says jot, but it's more properly yod. Uh, that's referring to the smallest Hebrew letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And then tittle, he's referring to um, these tiny strokes on several Hebrew characters. It's kind of like if you, if you type a lot, you have serif fonts, you have the F, but then there's like fancy little accents, you know what I'm talking about? It's kind of like talking about that in the Hebrew language, just the, the, the specific strokes and accents in several Hebrew characters. Both Thomas Manton and John Owen, who were prominent Puritans over this time, appeal to this verse to argue for the divine inspiration of the Bible. John Owen writes this, it is true, we have not the autographa of Moses and the prophets, of the apostles and evangelists, but the apographa, or the copies, which we, which we have, contain every iota that was in them, end quote. So Owen believed that between the copies that we have, we have every iota from the originals. So that's the key scripture text that was used to support divine preservation. Let's consider then number three, the precise degree or the extent of that divine preservation. So now it's time for us to open up that can of worms from earlier. When the confession asserts that God has preserved the purity and the authenticity of the original writings in the copies, is it talking about the entire message that was conveyed from the Bible or is it talking about every single letter and word? And if it's the latter, again, where is this pure and authentic text found? So let's think through that first one. The first one is substantial or essential preservation, letter A. Substantial or essential preservation. So advocates of this view, substantial preservation, they don't insist that God has preserved every single letter and every single word of the original writings of Moses, Isaiah, Paul, etc. They would argue that the various passages that talk about God preserving his word, like in Matthew 5.18, we're not primarily talking about um, every letter and every word, but talking about fulfilling every prophecy or, or how the moral law is and always has been valid. Uh, while these texts imply that Scripture is always going to be available to the end of the age, according to this view, they don't make absolute preservation necessary. Besides that, advocates of this view would point out that there actually have been times in redemptive history where God has allowed parts of Scripture to be lost for some time. For example, God's people so neglected the Scriptures in, in the days of the evil king Manasseh, in 2 Kings 22, that part of his word was lost until it was rediscovered in the days of Josiah. Again, that's in 2 Kings 22, 8 through 20. That being said, advocates of this view would, would insist that there are no biblical books of the canon that have been or will be lost. They also say that God preserved 
the entire message of every book. God has preserved every doctrine of the scriptures in every book. And in order for him to, uh, to preserve those messages and doctrines, then God would need to preserve most of the words of the text. And from that perspective, it really is empirical fact that the Hebrew and the Greek texts have been remarkably well-preserved, better preserved than any other manuscripts and any other ancient writings in history. So that's the substantial preservation or the essential preservation view. There's also the view of B, absolute preservation. Absolute preservation. It seems like Puritans like John Owen, they believed in a kind of absolute preservation. Like they interpreted Matthew 5.18 that we just read to mean that God would preserve not only every word, but also every letter, every tittle of Hebrew and Greek originals in the copies. And some would even say that this was actually the majority view, the prevailing view of those who wrote the Westminster Confession of Faith in 1644. The Baptists, later on, copied that entire paragraph verbatim and put it into the Baptist Confession so we could guess that they shared the same view. But a problem with this view, something that's sticky with this view from their perspective, is that the Hebrew text that was available to them at the time was the Masoretic text. And in that text, the Jewish scribes who were called Masoretes, they even added notes in the margin in which they suggested alternate readings to certain texts. So if the Masoretes, who had created these copies of the Hebrew text, were adding marginal notes, and they weren't absolutely certain if a certain part was pure and authentic, then how could the Puritans, who were using those texts, be absolutely certain themselves? And then when it comes to the New Testament, the Textus Receptus, which was the Greek New Testament they were using, was based on several different Greek manuscripts. And that, again, in that situation, not only were there variant readings between the different manuscripts that Erasmus used to compile the Textus Receptus, but there were even variants in the, in the, in the publications of the Textus Receptus that he released. So there's not one Textus Receptus. There's, there's several Greek New Testaments that he compiled, and they don't even all agree. And the several manuscripts that he used to compile them aren't completely in agreement with each other. Yes, sir. Oh, okay. All right, we'll come back to you. Just remind me so that I don't forget. Okay? So, again, with that in mind, how could the Puritans hold that God preserved every last word? How could they be certain that a variant that was chosen to be in an edition of the Textus Receptus was absolutely in the original? Well, let me just say, the Puritans were no dummies. They were aware that there were variants within the manuscripts. And what they would do is they would look at the different manuscripts and they would study the different variants and they would make arguments for which ones were most likely in the authentic readings. This is a discipline that we call today textual criticism. And it's not about criticizing the text, it's about analyzing them and making judgments as to their accuracy, okay? So let's say, going back to the example of the wedding vows, right? All but one of you, all but Jared's manuscript says, take thee, Megan. But Jared's manuscript says, take thee, Megan Romero. Which one do you think was in the original? So the first, everyone but Jared says, take thee, Megan. You think the one with the last name is original? Only Jared's has the last name. So theirs doesn't have it. It just says, take the Megan. But you put, take the Megan Romero. Just because you... Great point, yeah. You would argue that it's in the original, even though you're the only manuscript that has it. That's interesting. <laughs> that's a great point. She wasn't Megan Romero at the time. So in this case, you're like, well, that's not historical. I would say that if... if if in this situation, just logically, I read to you my vows and all of you omitted Romero, but you included Romero, that you probably just accidentally filled it in because you're used to writing her name as a whole. 
or um, you know, for example, in the, in the last prayer list that we had printed, um, uh, Tori had accidentally put um, more evangelisms for, or more evangelism opportunities for Christ. What she meant to put was for Chris Metron, who had given this um, prayer request to begin with. But because she's so used to writing Christ, that's how she put it in the prayer list. And that's, that's what a lot of scribal errors are. It's just accidentally looking down at the wrong place or accidentally misspelling a word. That's what a lot of these variants are. So I don't want anyone to be scared that like everything is so different. It's really typos, manual typos. But I, I kind of digress there for a second. My apologies. Um, sorry, I'm imagining hands now. Where did I leave off? Again, textual criticism is not about criticizing the text. If you were doing textual criticism on your copies of my wedding vows, what you're doing is you're analyzing them, and based on your analysis, you're making judgments as to their accuracy. So then, how did the Puritans, Puritans harmonize their doctrine of absolute preservation with the reality that these copies have all sorts of these variants that they need to deal with? Well, for starters, they believed that the variants were minor, and that none of the variants affected the meaning of the text, or the overall integrity of the Bible. For example, John Owen writes this in the 1600s. Notwithstanding what hath been spoken on the preservation of Scripture, we grant that there are and have been various lections or readings in the Old Testament and the New. But then he adds this. Let anyone examine them. He will find them to be so small, consisting for the most part in unnecessary accents, of no importance to the sense of any word that they deserve not to be taken notice of. So he's arguing, yeah, there are variants, but they're really not important. They don't change anything. That's his argument. The kind of variants among the, uh, the, the manuscripts that he had at the time that Owen had in mind probably included some of these. Is it spelled Nazareth or Nazareth in Matthew 2.23? Is it Christ Jesus or is it Jesus Christ in 1 Timothy 1.2? Is it temptation or temptations in 2 Peter 2.9? So those are some of the variants in the manuscripts available at the time. Sometimes the variants were a little more significant. Did the wise men find or see Jesus with Mary in Matthew 2.11? Did John declare the promise or the message that God is light in 1 John 1, 5. Are those who make oaths in danger of falling into hypocrisy or falling unto condemnation in James 5, 12? Those are some other variants in the scriptures, the manuscripts, rather, that they had available at the time. Take a look at 1 John 2, 23. We'll take a look at an example here. 1 John 2, 23. In 1 John 2.23, we read this. <clears throat> no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Or in the 1611 King James, but he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. So the question is, with regard to textual criticism, is whether the second part of the verse is in the original Greek but he that acknowledged the Son hath the Father also. If you look at the original 1611 edition of the King James edition, they actually print that part of the verse in a different font than the rest of the book. And the reason they do that is because the second part of the verse doesn't appear at all in the Textus Receptus, in the Greek manuscripts that Erasmus used to put that together. But it does show up in the Latin Vulgate, which was dated back to the 4th and 5th centuries. The Textus Receptus texts were dated at earliest the 12th century. So Latin Vulgate is older than the manuscripts that Erasmus used for the Textus Receptus. So, again, the last phrase is in the Latin Vulgate, but not in the Textus Receptus. And actually, the Vulgate is probably correct here. 
because later on when you found more manuscripts that actually dated earlier than the 12th century, dated back to the 4th, the 3rd, the 2nd centuries AD and even earlier than that, uh, that phrase is in some of those older manuscripts, all right? So they, the, the King James does add it in and I think they did so correctly, even though it wasn't in the Textus Receptus. Again, all that to say, Owen was aware of the kinds of variants, but he believed that they were unimportant. He believed that they were insignificant. So Owen probably considered the preserved text to not be one particular edition of the old Hebrew and Greek texts, but rather the hundreds of manuscripts that, on which those editions are based. So in that sense, Owen and others could argue that God has preserved every single word, every single letter. Which brings us to letter C. Which is it? Is it, is it substantial preservation or is it absolute preservation? Like, what do we do? How should we think about this view that was held by John Owen and, and, and the other Puritans? And in, is their view of absolute preservation demanded by the language of the confession? Do you need to be an absolute preservationist in order to be truly reformed or truly subscribing to the confession? First, again, Owen is absolutely right that the variants in the texts are minor and they're insignificant. There is no variant that adds doctrine and there is no variant that cancels any doctrine in the scriptures. At best, one might affect the nuance of a doctrine. Of a doctrine. And this observation is still true today after we've uncovered more ancient manuscripts that were not available in Owen's day. Second, Owen might well be right that God has preserved every single word of scripture between all of the existing manuscripts that we have, but that depends on whether we're talking about the manuscripts that have no longer been destroyed, or if we're talking about some published edition of the Hebrew and Greek Testaments, like perhaps one of the particular editions of the Textus Receptus. And from my perspective, as well as Dr. Gonzalez's, who I'm completely ripping off, the first one is going to be more likely, and the second one is less likely. In other words, it's more likely that every single word of Scripture has been preserved when you collect all of the manuscripts that we have and compare them with each other, and less likely that any one edition of Hebrew or Greek is completely 100% correct. So for example, after the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1947, we actually found a variant for Isaiah 21.8 that I would argue is more likely the correct reading as opposed to what was available in John Owen's day. Take a look there at Isaiah 21.8. Isaiah 21.8. You guys hanging in? All right. I'll read it to you first in the, in the 1611 King James. For thus hath the Lord said unto me, Go set a watchman, let him declare what he seeth. And he saw a chariot with a couple of horsemen, a chariot of uh, donkeys, I'll say, and a chariot of camels. And he hearkened diligently with much heed, and he cried, A lion! My Lord, I stand continually upon the watchtower in the daytime, and I am set in my ward whole nights. So that's the KJV 1611. Here's how it reads in the ESV following the other variant that was found later. For thus, says the, for thus the Lord said to me, Go set a watchman. Let him announce what he sees. When he sees riders, horsemen in pairs, riders on donkeys, riders on camels, let him listen diligently, very diligently. Then he who saw cried out, Upon a watchtower I stand, O Lord, continually by day, and at my post I am stationed whole nights. So in some manuscripts, it's Hebrew word for a lion. <clears throat> in another manuscripts, it's the Hebrew word for he who saw, which would make a lot more sense when you're referring back to the watchman who is supposed to declare what he sees. Those two words for lion and he who saw are very, very similar. One is hira and one is har. Uh, an illustration of this would be the difference between go to cavalry and go to calvary, right? 
Go to cavalry would mean go to your military unit that uses horses, and go to cavalry would mean go to the cross. And it's just one letter. That's, that's how close these two words are that are translated a lion or he who saw. All right? Either you, you, re, you, either, you have to do one of two things. You have to dig your heels in and say that a lion is a correct reading, even though it absolutely makes no sense there. Or you would have to concede that God allowed a single word in Isaiah to be unavailable for a period of time, and later he allowed that word to be rediscovered. Again, that wouldn't be the first time God allowed something like that to happen. Right? He allowed an entire book of Moses to be lost for a period of time and later rediscovered, according to 2 Kings 22, verses 8 through 20. So third, it's, it's doubtful that passages like Matthew 5.18 are referring to the absolute preservation of every letter and tittle of the biblical text. More likely, what those passages are affirming are the absolute authority and the faithfulness of Scripture. That is, what Jesus didn't come to relax any of the laws. He didn't come to lessen any of the demands of the law. He came to keep the law perfectly. And he came to fulfill every promise of the law. But that doesn't require that literally every yod and tittle be precisely preserved. Fourth, even if the absolute preservation of the text was the majority view of the people who wrote these confessions, as some people claim, that doesn't necessarily mean that we must adopt that view. The framers of the confession will sometimes write language that is broad and ambiguous enough to allow for minority views for the sake of unity. And fifth, it really seems that, that the most consistent view with the language of the confession and the teaching of scripture would either be, one, a conservative substantial preservation view, or two, a qualified absolute preservation view. Let me explain what I mean. By conservative substantial preservation, what we mean is that God may not have preserved every jot and tittle or even every single word, but he has, he has and he will preserve the message and the doctrine of each book and the Bible as a whole. And again, like we said before, in order to do that, most of the words would need to be preserved in order to be consistent and have the right doctrines. So that would be an example of a conservative substantial preservation view. Qualified absolute preservation, what we mean is that God will preserve every word in the totality of the ancient manuscripts, even if some of those manuscripts are unavailable to all of God's people at any given moment in history. Sixth, we don't need to confine or limit that totality of ancient manuscripts to the Hebrew Masoretic text and the Textus Receptus, which were the manuscripts that were available at that time. Even John Owen was open to the idea of other manuscripts being discovered later and being addressed by their own merits. He writes this, if any other variant readings can be gathered or shall be hereafter out of ancient copies of credit and esteem where no mistake can be discovered as their cause, they deserve to be considered, he writes. Men must here deal by instances, not conjectures. So even though he, he affirmed the, the manuscripts that they had at the time, he was willing to say, hey, if they find some older and better ones later, they should be considered. They shouldn't just be thrown out wholesale. So I think, based on what he said, that if the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered not in 1947, but in the 1600s when John Owen lived, he would have been open to considering those older manuscripts, those manuscripts which now underlie many of our modern English versions, including the ESV. And so we would argue that you don't need to adopt the Textus Receptus or the majority text only in order to be truly reformed. And seventh, the doctrine and preservation of the scriptures is not based on a supernatural miracle that is free of any human error. In other words, when God inspired the text, he worked supernaturally so that every single word was God's word. That's supernatural, that's miraculous. When God has preserved the text, he has allowed for there to be variants, he has allowed for there to be scribal errors, and so on. And it's more like 
the way that God preserves the Christian and the way that God preserves the church. God promises that he's going to keep the Christian to the end. He's going to keep the church to the end. But he doesn't do it in a way that as soon as we're saved, we're just miraculously sinless, right? We still have errors. We still have sin. We don't have perfect churches. And in the same way, God's preservation of Scripture does not exclude the possibility of scribes making errors as they were copying the the manuscripts. And that's evident in what we have. So that's the first part of our study, the preservation of the Scriptures. And we're going to spend a lot less time on the second part, just our last 10 minutes here, the translation of Scripture. The translation of Scripture. Second half of the Second London Baptist, chapter 1, paragraph 8 says this. But because these original tongues are not known to all the people of God who have a right unto an interest in the scriptures and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them, therefore they are to be translated into the vulgar language of every nation unto which they come, that the word of God dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship him in an acceptable manner and through patience and comfort of the scriptures may have hope. So again, the gospel has gone out to the nations. But not all the nations know Hebrew and Greek. And so the confession insists that the scriptures be translated into the common tongues of every nation. Not only does the confession argue for translations, but it actually highlights the right, the interest of every child of God to be able to read and search the scriptures. So in contrast to Rome, the reformers and the Puritans actually encouraged rather than discouraged lay people to read and study the Bible. Well, what are some of the biblical arguments, letter A, for the translation of Scripture? Well, how do we know that it's biblically allowed to translate the Bible into other languages? We'll give you five quick reasons that we know that translating the Bible is A-OK and actually good. First, the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles spoke and wrote in the vernacular. In other words, they just talked in the common tongue. They wrote in the common tongue of the people at the time. Two, the Levites translated and expounded the scriptures. So when the Jews were finally released from their Babylonian captivity and went back to Jerusalem, a lot of them came back. Remember, it was 70 years of not being, being in Babylon. A lot of them came back not knowing Hebrew, not knowing the Hebrew of the scriptures. Uh, They probably knew Aramaic, and Aramaic and Hebrew are similar, but they're not the same. So Ezra and the Levites addressed this challenge by translating the scripture into a language that was understood by the people. We read in Nehemiah 8.8. Nehemiah 8.8. They read out of the book of the law of God, translating and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was read. So the Levites translated and expounded the scripture. Third, the apostles cite from the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. So when they're writing, when the apostles are writing in the New Testament, they actually cite, not the Hebrew text, they cite the Septuagint. And in some cases, they would quote the Septuagint when they were quoting Jesus, which might indicate that the Savior also was using the Septuagint. In other cases, they would cite the Septuagint themselves when they are making a point. Actually, sometimes, A New Testament writer like Matthew, for example, would just translate the Hebrew that he knew into the common Greek uh, himself. So he would do the translation himself. Fourthly, the sanctification of God's people depends on the scripture. The sanctification of God's people depends on the scripture. So over and over again, the scriptures encourage and exhort believers to read, study, and meditate on these scriptures. And fifth, the Great Commission requires the translation of God's word. The Great Commission requires the translation of God's word. If we are to make disciples of all nations, if we are to teach them everything that Christ has commanded, then we need to make Christ's word available and understandable to them. So we have an obligation, actually, not just, it's not just allowed, we have an obligation to translate it and make it available to the nations. So that's the translation of Scripture. Let's look next at the lessons from what we've learned tonight. We've, we looked at a lot. Now, what should we do with what we've learned? Number one, the church can be grateful 
that God has faithfully preserved his word through the centuries. I was actually talking to somebody about this topic very recently, and it's actually encouraging. So you have the, the Textus Receptus, which is the 12th century and later manuscripts that Erasmus used to compile a, new, a Greek New Testament instead of just the Latin Vulgate. And then they find in 1947 a lot more manuscripts and older manuscripts, and what would be disconcerting is if they were just completely different from what we've had all this time. But actually, they ended up being essentially the same. And that's encouraging. It's actually an encouraging thing, where it's like, oh, well, it, they didn't just find some new heresies or things like that or, or, think, or discover that we've been doing things all wrong all this time, like what Mormonism is based on, right? You, the church has been doing it wrong all this time. No, instead, it was just a confirmation of the doctrines that we already had. So we should thank God that he has faithfully preserved his word through the centuries. It is indisputable fact that the discipline of textual criticism has confirmed an extraordinary degree of integrity and preservation of scripture, unlike any other piece of ancient literature. There's this great infographic. It's in, it's in Tim Challey's book, uh, A Visual Theology of the Bible or something like that. You can Google, Google this image. Um, I just Googled Tim Challey's preservation of the scriptures and it's a great visual because it has like all of these famous ancient writings and how many manuscripts that each of them has. And then it shows how many the Bible has. And it's just like, it is incredibly much more. It's not just a few more. It's like tons and tons more than any other ancient writing. That is how God has preserved his word. And for that, we should be very grateful. And even though there are some variants and there are some errors in some of the manuscripts, again, they amount to a a very small percentage of the Bible, and not only is it a very small percentage of the Bible, but again, all, none of those variants actually changes or affects Christian doctrine. So again, we can be sure that God's word is available to us and we should be grateful. Number two, although the preservation of scripture is ultimately a work of God, we should remember that God uses people to accomplish this work. He uses people. Throughout the centuries, God used the faithful labors of Jewish scribes for centuries. Some of them may have been true believers. The scribes in Jesus' day seem not to be believers, not all of them. And yet God still used them. God also used the diligence of Christians to preserve the New Testament text. Some of those people were professional copyists. Some of them were just people like you and me. They were not. And God has also used the the hard work of archaeologists and scientists and professional linguists to preserve the scriptures. So God's doing it, but he uses people to do that. And knowing that should give us all a sense of responsibility to promote the preservation of God's word going forward. And one of the ways that we do that is by training people in Hebrew and Greek. That's why when you go to semin- if you go to seminary, you're going to need to take Hebrew and Greek. And I think that's a good thing that they are making people going to seminary do Hebrew and Greek. But even if seminaries didn't exist, the Hebrew and Greek should be essential in the church to make sure that we are preserving God's word. Also, when God's people no longer love the scriptures and when pastors no longer preach the scriptures, then God may allow parts of the scripture to be temporarily lost to some people or obscured for the next generation. So we have a responsibility to cultivate in the church an ongoing devotion to God's word. And thirdly, lastly, the church of Christ is to some degree responsible for the faithful translation of scripture into the languages of the nations. Again, God is ultimately the one who makes sure that happens, but we have a degree of responsibility to do that. Jesus has left us with the privilege and the responsibility to take the gospel to the nations. And our forefathers have rightly seen that that part of that stewardship involves Bible translation. They were so convinced of the necessity of Bible translation that they even included it in their confessions of faith. And Jesus didn't give this stewardship to book publishers. He didn't give this stewardship to large corporations. Though we may work with them, we may work with such entities, he left that responsibility to the church. 
So may we labor together to be used by God to preserve his word and to get it out to the nations. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you again so much for your faithfulness to preserve your word for us. It is how we live. It's how we know what you have called for us to do. It's how we know you. And so again, thank you for your faithfulness in all of this. And we pray that that we would all the more treasure the scriptures that we have. Lord, we confess that we take them for granted. We confess that we let our Bibles get dusty. We let our Bible reading plans go default. And we don't see how precious this is, Lord. And so we thank you for tonight. And we pray that you would renew in us a, a view of your scriptures that holds them highly. And that we would read them with confidence, knowing that it's your very word to us. Bless us, Lord, as we endeavor to do that by your grace. In Christ's name, amen.